This podcast is brought to you by the Sydney Institute for Psychoanalysis. If you'd like to hear more audio lectures like this, head to our website, sydneypsychoanalysis.asn.au. The next event is in March 2014, Engaging with Psychoanalytic Ideas and Concepts, starting with a three-part lecture series presented by Dr. Louise Braddock, entitled A Conversation Between Philosophy and Psychoanalysis. There's more information and registration forms online at sydneypsychoanalysis.asn.au. Meet like-minded people and participate in the discussion. We hope to see you there. Now, an excerpt from Navigating Our Culture's Body Anxiety with Susie Orbach. So, I think you're all here because you know that our bodies are being undermined. And it starts really early. There are high heels for babies now. Um, beauty pageants for five-year-olds. Happy birthday parties for six-year-olds with manicures and um, runways so that they can display themselves as models. And a phenomenon that's happening in the States for these kind of contests is Botox for eight-year-olds. So age compression is happening at every juncture. And with women of my age, and I'm in my, the second part of my 60s, expected to look at least 25 years younger. Um, and little girls of five or six displaying themselves as really as though, as though they were sex, sex, sexually available and sex objects. So I think we face an enormous challenge. It's a personal challenge. It's a political challenge. It's a psychological challenge to change things. And almost every conversation, I think if you think about your own conversations or you overhear conversations, I'm talking more to the women in the audience, will include some negative reference to the individual's own body. And it's become so commonplace that we don't even register it. And for me, that's very tragic and it's very hateful. Now, when it comes to therapy, we therapists see the outcome on individual and families of industries that make their profits by making body trouble for us. So, what's our cultural context? Today's women's bodies are becoming an endangered species. All throughout the world, the variety of the female body and increasingly men's bodies are being reduced to one overwhelming aesthetic. I don't have to spell it out for you. You know what it is. Body acceptability, or what constitutes body acceptability, is being narrowed and narrowed. And many of us, I'd I'd hasten to say most of us, and particularly if I talk to young women, have the feeling of being excluded from being able to take our bodies just for granted and to enjoy them. Instead, our size, our height, our shape, our color, our aging are under assault. And I think we're losing bodies and body variety like we're losing indigenous languages. The body's becoming like English, spoken everywhere with little variety allowed. So how did it happen? Well, it didn't just happen. The mid-20th century has seen an unprecedented change in the place of the body 
And these industries have, create, have contributed to the creation of body hatred. The glamour industries, the diet industry, the pharmaceutical industry, the beauty industry, the food industry, the cosmetic surgery industry. It may not have been a purposeful conspiracy. I'm prepared to believe that. But nevertheless, they all profit from the most incredible body distress that exists. So, the glamour industries um, dominate our visual culture with their digitally enhanced representations of women. And they create the sense that beauty is desirable, essential, and perfectible. And that we all need to be beautiful in the same way. And this has a huge influence on girls and women's self-esteem. And while 90% of women want to change something about their body, younger women are so preoccupied that they think about their bodies every 15 minutes. That's what all the surveys show. Now, that's apparently more often than boys think about sex. I don't know. Maybe the men here could tell us that. So they, we become prey to all the commercial practices that persuade us to be thin while creating fat profits for the style industries. And we're ever watchful for what will be the next targeted area of our bodies. They haven't actually hit knees yet, but I'm sure it's coming. But to put it this way is not to imply that we're just victims of the body industry transformers. That would be too simple. From when we're tiny, we learn that the body is important and that we must relish the possibilities of changing and perfecting it so that the things we do in relation to changing our bodies are perceived of as being good. So that today, either reducing or increasing or augmenting your breast is, is sold to us as a mantra of empowerment. We don't see these things as being things that are done to us. We see these things as being things that we can enter into and that we can really develop by being transformative. And the creation of a thin aesthetic is creating extreme profit because only a certain percentage of us can have that particular body. And in this particular image, you'll see that there's, there's a characteristic lollipop shape. In other words, the person is, has been both photoshopped down to look very tiny... But when you're that skinny and you don't come that skinny naturally, you get a very big head. I don't mean emotionally you get a big head or vanity-wise. I mean actually there's a distortion. And, of course, it's not just the thin aesthetic. If, if tomorrow, I know it's inconceivable in our society, but if tomorrow we were all supposed to be twice my size, there would be a lot of people in extreme difficulty because they wouldn't be able to make it because set, their set point would, would not get overridden. Um, Kirsty Clements, the ex-editor of Australian Vogue, reports when she was talking to casting directors, the people who choose the models. They're demanding that the models be thinner and thinner. I've got four girls in hospitals, these are top models, and a couple of others have resorted to eating tissues. Apparently, they swell up and fill your stomach. Now, I found this really chilling because Primo Levi, who was in the camps and was a chemist, worked out that you could actually try to reduce the feelings of starvation by eating paper. 
So to see our models now resorting to eating tissues in order to give them a, a, a vague sense of, of fullness is, is absolutely terrifying. So we think of our models as being the expression of thinness, but then none of them are ever thin enough. So why should we support women and men who are now doing this? Starvation leads to serious mental health issues. It's a criminal act. It's an act of violence against women that these industries are creating an aesthetic which devalues all of our bodies. Now, one of the ways they've done this, which I think is quite interesting, is to create this whole thing called the BMI. It's a recent player in the field of body anxiety. It's not a scientific measure at all, but you've probably all heard that you're supposed to have a BMI between 25 and 30. So if I were to ask you who had the the bigger BMI, you would probably answer the person on this side, right? Is that correct? In fact, they both have a BMI of 31. They have exactly the same BMI. It's a a completely crude measure. It doesn't mean much, but it's being used very heavily and has been promulgated by industries who then profit from the notion of a BMI that we must all be under. And I'm always fond of saying this, but I say it all the time. Brad Pitt and George Clooney are in the overweight category. I ask you, can that be true? No. So when you hear the obesity stats, it's perfectly true that a lot of people are very large, but an awful lot of those people are included in the stats who are kind of George Clooney's size. So who the hell does this serve? Well, number one it serves is the diet industry. I've only got figures that are, at this point, seven years old. It's really quite hard to get um, present figures. But... Dieting to be beautiful and to keep your BMI in check is so widespread that there are girls who are growing up today who have no idea about anything but dieting, okay? And if dieting worked, let's think about this, you really would only have to do it once, right? Diet companies rely on a 95% recidivism rate. They won't quite admit that, but Weight Watchers did admit last week that they, have, that they only go after the 85% who are return customers and the ones that for, for whom their business doesn't work. That's who they actually focus all of their, their um, energies on. So it's a very high failure rate, but completely commercially essential to companies like Weight Watchers and SlimFast. And I see. At, at, at present, 50% of nine-year-old girls have dieted. That's a really shocking figure. That they're already... I mean, they're being preoccupied at five or six, but they're dieting by nine. They have definitely... They've all, nearly all of them tried it for a prolonged period, but 50% have, have, have done it. Uh, if we look at another diet company, um, I don't think it's popular right now. I think it might have gone down the pan. I don't know. Maybe it's come to Australia and, and marauding all of you. Is Nutrisystem, which um, is, is it here or not here? No. Okay, so it was the fastest growing diet company um, in the States, and it grew from a million in profit in one year to 85 million two years later. Um, Weight Watchers, for example, had a growth rate in the first quarter. I know it's very odd for a psychoanalyst, psychotherapist to be reading 
um, profit and loss and all of those kinds of things. But it's worth looking at because you discover that Weight Watchers claims a growth rate for the first quarter of 2011 of 29.8% on the prior year. That was in UK. And globally, 39.7% growth rate. That's pretty interesting. Okay, another player is, is the pharmaceutical end of the diet industry. And even when the drugs are absolutely useless, if not downright dangerous, like the case of Fenfen, where a maximum weight loss of uh, two and a half kilos was the result of its usage, and it produced enormous problems, pulmonary problems for many people, so serious that it had to be withdrawn from the market, and there was a huge payout. The belief has been built up that obesity is a disease which can be pharmaceutically treated, and huge amounts of money are invested in the next anti-fat drug. The other player, of course, is the food industry, and they increase their profits in three distinct ways. By creating more categories for foods for us to buy. So, for example, if you take the fat out of milk, you're selling one kind of product, and then if you put it in something else, like sort of super-rich ice cream, you're selling not just a regular ice cream, but you're selling an ice cream plus product. Um, Then the second way is the new thing in the food industry, which is to find the exact bliss point. In other words, the complete amount of sugar and fat. And usually the sugar isn't even real sugar. It's it's, it's the corn syrup sugar that doesn't get digested and causes all sorts of metabolic problems and may have implications for diabetes. But it's by finding the exact point at which people just think they cannot resist this food, not because it's particularly flavorful, but because it's got this intensity of sugar and fat that they add profit to the process. And by producing, thirdly, by producing foods that have a long shelf life, which usually involves the, um, the, the use of chemicals or things that really aren't food. So I think we should be wary of that. And then there's a, a, a beauty industry who's impossible to actually calculate how much money um, is spent in the beauty industry. But I, I draw your attention to the um, annual growth rate, or your GDP in Australia, which I think was 1.9% last year. And the growth rate of the beauty industry in Australia was 7%. So that's, that's pretty interesting. And... Um, in some countries, it's, it's much more significant. Like in China, where there was a growth rate of 7%, beauty companies were up 24%. So this is a, a very captive market. And if you can make people feel uncomfortable enough that they have to do a really huge spend, this isn't, this isn't to take... A, and take out what can be really pleasurable about decorating yourself. You can get phenomenal profits. If we switch now to the other industry, um, plastic surgery, which is um, growing hugely, um, world, worldwide, plastic surgery is a growth industry with a billion dollar expansion expected this year. And I think all of you know probably more about this than I do because you have countries which are, t- are turning themselves into tourism for plastic surgery, Singapore and Thailand particularly. 
for your people. And it's really interesting because it's become so normalized now to think that the body needs to be transformed and rehabbed as though we were simply an old kitchen um, that it, it doesn't really matter if you, from what class you come. I mean, in, in Brazil, you've got no money. You go and buy the breasts in the, in the sort of pharmaceutical supermarket and your doctor will put them in for you. In Argentina, it is so widespread that health plans allow you to have one cosmetic surgery procedure a year. So, I mean, I guess by the time you're kind of between 18 and 36, you could do the whole thing and start all over again. So, these are health plans, right? So, what does it mean that women's bodies have been so destabilized that this, it's considered healthy to operate? Thanks for listening. To download the full talk, visit us online at sydneypsychoanalysis.asn.au.